0: Hi, I'm Lee Rail and you're listening to SeedPod, a podcast dedicated to the people shaping South Africa through entrepreneurship, sustainability, and design. Before we get started, please rate us on iTunes and share this with your friends. It really helps us a lot. Named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA, Debbie Millman is also an author, educator, curator, and host of the Design Matters podcast. As founder and host of Design Matters, one of the world's first and longest-running podcasts, Millman has interviewed nearly 500 artists, designers, and cultural commentators over the past 14 years. Design Matters won a 2011 Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. In 2015, Apple designated it one of the best overall podcasts in iTunes, and in 2018, the show was honored by the Webby Awards. Debbie is the author of six books. Her illustrations have appeared in publications such as the New York Times, New York Magazine, Print Magazine, Design Observer and Fast Company, and her artwork appears in galleries across America. Debbie co-founded the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, was the president of Sterling Brands, one of the world's leading branding consultancies, and has worked with many of the world's top companies. She is frequently asked to speak internationally on design and branding and loves to travel. Debbie is currently working with Law & Order SVU actor and activist Mariska Hargitay's Joyful Heart Foundation to eradicate sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse and the Rape Kit backlog. Needless to say that it was an absolute honour for me to have Debbie on my podcast at Design Indaba 2020 earlier this year. We discussed a wide range of topics, and our conversation ended up being quite a philosophical one, discussing her personal visioning process that she does with her students, why people are not brands, some ideas about why we are so addicted to things, and she was very open about sharing some of her fears and struggles as a creative person. A lot has changed since this interview, but we still remain the same flawed humans with the same needs and fears, and I have no doubt will be inspired by this amazing woman and our conversation debbie Mulman. i actually can't believe that i'm sitting here talking to you today oh uh, thank
1: you lee thank well, you
0: welcome to seed pod
1: my absolute pleasure
0: um there, there's so much to talk about because i feel like there there's so many commonalities that we have um both being designers as a start both running i mean i've been listening to your podcast for maybe three four years um you both Jewish. Ah, <laughs> um, fellow tribesmen. Yes. Um or women. So congratulations on you getting engaged. Huh, right? Thank you, yes. Um I hear are, are the stories true that I read in the in the I don't know social media about how you met.
1: Tell me um, what you've heard. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um that you pursued her. Yeah, yeah, I I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, From an outsider's perspective, it looks like it's another facet of you actively creating something that you want for yourself in your life. Um,
1: That's a really wonderful way of putting it. And I don't know that I would have thought of it that way, but I think that's probably true. Absolutely.
0: I, I think it was last week I did... I was listening again to your Tim Ferriss interview, and I did the that exercise.
1: Oh, the ten-year plan, ten-year
0: plan thing. The the one day. Yes. It was so powerful. I wrote. I, I've got this big sketch pad about this big, and I wrote four full pages of that, and I just left that feeling so like, oh, it's it's going to happen. I don't have to like feel this urgency that all these things need to come true. That it was like an ease that and a trust that it will happen somehow.
1: It's, it's really quite extraordinary how that happens. It's something that I've heard many times from people that have undertaken the exercise. So I'm, I'm really excited for you.
0: When did you do that exercise?
1: I did that exercise in 2005 in Milton Glaser's summer intensive at the School of Visual Arts. He used to teach a summer intensive, and I took it, and I didn't know what it was about. It was a very hush-hush kind of fight club mentality about the class. You didn't know much about what you were going to do prior to taking it. You had to just put your trust in Milton's arc, which I did very happily, and... That class changed my life. Um, Milton doesn't teach that class anymore. And so I asked him if I could incorporate the what was a five-year plan in his class into my classes at the School of Visual Arts and adjusted the time because I was teaching and am teaching undergrads and graduate students. And his class was mid-career professionals. Right. Okay. And so I felt like... The younger folk needed a little bit more runway than five years to manifest some of their dreams.
0: Yeah, I think as a as a young person, five years is like oh yeah, yeah. Even it's a now, diaper change, yeah, even now, it still absolutely goes, goes quickly. Yeah, and uh, did everything. So, was your relationship that you now have part of your ten-year vision?
1: Well. At the time, I was dating someone, and I wasn't in any way um, certain that that was going to last. And so I just wrote my love, that I am with my love, as opposed to a specific person's name, because I didn't think that that was likely. (laughs) Okay. And I'm really glad because it was a man's name. And since that time I've come out. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so,
0: so, so that's a recent thing for you. Uh, 2012. Okay. I, I'm relatively recent. Um, well, and that's eight years now.
1: <laughs> it's well, still relatively yeah, recent yeah. given I'm in my 50s. Um, and so that was an, a nice thing to have non-gendered because I did forecast being with somebody but i didn't know who that was going to be but also i did the plan i did the the class with milton in 2005 and it was a 5 year plan and so that took me through 2010 oh, right. another thing that i've learned since and something i'm really glad i incorporated into the way that i teach this exercise is that it really took about 12 years for everything on that list to manifest. And so the only things that didn't manifest were things that I could have manifested if I wanted to, but chose not to for any number of reasons. I changed my mind about things or I didn't want to do something that I thought I wanted to do. And so that's another reason why I'm glad that it's a much longer period Mm -hmm. of time in which to envision, because I think that it does take a long time for things to happen for a lot of people.
0: I, I smiled while you while you were saying that because I just feel excited that that vision is going to come true for myself. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it works? Well, what is it about this? I think exercise? there's a few
1: things. Um, because I've been thinking about it for quite a long time now, and I I have spoken to a lot of students about the power, not only in 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 an effort to encourage them to put their whole hearts and souls into writing this, but also the older students that have now been manifesting their own tenure plans. And so it's quite a regular thing now to hear from people that write me and say, oh, by the way, you know, most of this came true and I could hardly believe it. Because a lot of what you are thinking about are really big, audacious dreams. When I look back at my 2005 plan, I can't believe that all of that happened because it's such an integral part of my life now. Mm. And so I recently did a second 10-year plan and that I did at the end of 2017. And I gave myself a deadline of 2017 to do it. And I did it on December 31st. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up staying home that night. I had no New Year's plans because I had to finish the 10-year plan. Um, but I'm really really excited to say that a few things have already manifested on that second plan. And so it's a very powerful exercise. You ask why? Well, I think there's a few things. One is being very deliberate about how you envision your possibilities and suddenly you're not thinking about your life by editing things that you're afraid won't happen and, and trying to prevent that loss from even happening before it's even possible that it happens. Um, I think you're also living in a state of what Milton would have called abundance as opposed to scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that I do in my class is that we share them. And I do believe that that declaration is really important to sort of Sending it out into the universe, mm. and and that ownership of it.
0: Mm. So, so you 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 believe in use of universal energies and manifestation, and that? Yeah, I mean that sounds paradigm. a little
1: woo woo. You know, I'm very much a evolutionist. <laughs> um, I do believe that there is magic that exists, but magic is a word that's being used to um include the unknown and and we just see it as magic because we don't know of a way to explain it mm. but i do believe that there is more than we know but they'll, do- but eventually there'll be a scientific reason for it <laughs> <laughs> or
0: or, sci- or the the nature of science will change in a way that we don't expect exactly reveals exactly
1: exactly the
0: stuff we don't know yes um I was fortunate enough to watch your your talk today. Thank you for that. Um, and I, ca- I can't help but correlate this exercise with what you were saying there around um, intentionally as a species, as a planet, creating something different. So that's just an interesting thought that I had now is creating... Collect It would be an amazing thing to create a collective 10-year plan for ourselves. It's where we oh, need to be. Yeah. What do we want to
1: right? create? I think and, Greta Thunberg is doing that. Indeed. In her own way. In her own way. Yeah. But yes, that is a really wonderful idea. Let's all sit down and envision the world we want to live in in 10 years. I mean, the interesting thing is, and I, I think it's somewhere under 200 years, if we do indeed make it, we're all going to look the same. You know, we're not going to have the same type of race wars because there's so much um, intermarriage that and an interconception that it'll be a really wonderful world to consider where people aren't fighting over skin color because we've evolved as a species where we're really all the same color.
0: I oh, read really? is is that the sign? I think it's
1: about two hundred oh, wow. more years or so. Because of the way that we are populating now, Um, which will be so exciting.
0: Our current trajectory doesn't see us reaching 200
1: years. Um, I mean, I often say that if we really knew how we got here on this planet, then we wouldn't have religious wars because we put so much faith into this unknown unseen unproven being that somehow uh, motivates our every waking moment Um, when in fact if we knew how the universe was created scientifically that would prove that we are all the same Mm. i I
0: still feel like many people would still discredit what the science says yeah, in course. our in our Absolutely. current paradigm. Yep. Maybe yep. two hundred years time, it'll be different when we all yeah. look the same and have the same God or the same belief system. Or yeah, um, yeah. It's, I mean, these are interesting things to think about. Uh,
1: or the ones that don't want to participate in that sort of mixedness of humanity end up being the outcasts because they don't want to participate. Mm.
0: So this exercise that you do is part of a, a course that you're now teaching. How long have you been in the t- teaching role?
1: I've been teaching undergrads since 2006, and I've been teaching graduate students since 2010. And in both my undergrad and my grad classes, I I conduct this exercise in my undergrad classes. It's in a class that I've called um, differentiate or die, how to get a job when you graduate. And part of the impetus of that class was my inability to imagine what my life could be when I was that age. And when I graduated college, it was, I, I, created a world where I was limited only by my own actions and thoughts about what I thought I deserved and was worthy of. And so part of what I try to do with the undergrads is give them a sense of what is of what they're capable of, and then they're able to envision a, a life for themselves that isn't self-edited because of their own insecurities or fears or sense of rejection or failure. Um, And so that's a, a critical, critical part of what we do in that class in order to be able to encourage the students to really pursue their dreams. If they don't know what their dreams are, then what are they pursuing? They're pursuing what they think is realistic or what they think is attainable. And often that's socialized by their family or their peers. And then in my grad class, I teach it as part of a way of creating a body of work that is about how they want to portray themselves in the world. So it's in my branding master's program. So I have a master's, I teach a, or I chair a master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts. And In order for my students to begin to make a mark, no pun intended, in branding, I encourage them as part of a class that I teach called A Brand Called You to start to develop a body of work that's based on their own personal beliefs about what is possible in and with branding. And so this way they are able to envision what they're capable of and then use that as a foundation of their. This body of work, but I do want to say that a brand called you is I have with you know sort of tongue firmly tucked into cheek um, because I actually feel that people shouldn't be brands, and so it's really more of a um, ironic uh, course title.
0: A few things in there. Um, just on the recent comment about people not being brands why not
1: well i think that humans, it seems to be a big trend at the- it is it's a huge trend people are messy we're inconsistent we lie we cheat we change our minds we are indecisive where always coming up with new things and brands aren't really supposed to be most of those attributes. This supposed to be fairly consistent. They're supposed to deliver on a promise. They're certainly not um, supposed to be messy and liars or cheaters. And I think if we try to be brands, we take away a lot of what it really means to be human and to struggle and to be, um, really try to, um, create a life that is one of searching and questioning and challenging and brands are manufactured. And that's one of the things that I talked about in my presentation today at design and Daba. We are manufacturing meaning through the brands that we make, but they're all manufactured humans are not we're living breathing souls and so i think if we the interesting thing is that brands aspire to have human attributes why would humans want to have brand attributes mm. sort of limits our our possibilities
0: I, I i hear you i see i see the. i can see the distinction that you're trying to make there um yeah specifically around the the humanness of being human and um Maybe it's just not attaching that word brand to a person and you can become a personality within a public space. I think we can
1: develop a reputation. But I don't think that we should develop personal brands unless we're selling cornflakes or Mm. makeup or… It it does
0: start having that feel to it where it feels false But then look what happens
1: if somebody does have some failing of some sort. Look what happened to Martha Stewart. Look what her misbehavior ended up doing to the brand. You have to end up living up to very, very high standards and have no possibility of any kind of error or mistake or experiment you mm. know humans want to experiment, but not every experiment we we undertake is successful, yeah, and you know brands don't want to have that many experimental failures okay.
0: I, I'm with I'm with you on the the non-human brand train. Um, do Do you feel the things that you're giving those students in those courses are things that you wish you'd had at that age?
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I didn't have a lot of guidance, and I was motivated primarily by my own insecurities and fears. And so, what I try to do is make that um, a priority to for the students to address in their own lives. And it's quite revolutionary what can happen if you take away some of those self-imposed barriers.
0: Mm. Uh, just listening to it, it sounds incredible. I wish I'd had the opportunity to do a course like with someone like you and learn those things at a younger age, because I've had to do my own work personally outside of everything in order to be able to, as you say, remove some of those personal barriers. Yes. Um yeah, and if we if we if we need to, I mean, the call. I, I guess I saw your presentation as a bit of a challenge or a call for us all to get together and create something new or define how we um, shape the world. We have to look at ourselves first before we're going to do that, because otherwise we're going to carry on with the squabbling and the fighting and the
1: exactly the
0: all the. All the messiness of, of the human condition. Yes. Um, when last did you design something? That was another question. I, I I know you designed that presentation.
1: Yes, I did all the illustrations. Are you
0: still actively designing?
1: Um,
0: or creating
1: in, in some form? I'm, I'm doing a lot of creating. I'm not working on any for-profit brands. I have done enough. <laughs> and i feel um really satisfied with the work that i did in that realm and now i work with organizations that need my help but are trying to change the world in some way um and and i offer those services pro bono wow because i can okay um obviously i'm I mean I'm happiest when I'm making things and so that could be a lesson plan that could be a podcast that could be an illustration um, I generally don't do um, design for money anymore
0: yeah I, I, th- I think I, I'm getting to the place where I, uh, I I struggle to to and have for a while um, to do that i, I But I'm also
1: a lot older than you And, and I was very fortunate in that because of the work that I did in branding, the company that I owned with two partners, we were able to sell that company to Omnicom in 2008 and that gave me a bit more financial freedom than I had before that. And I ended up staying at Sterling another eight years after the acquisition, which were wonderful years. And I loved doing the work in the network as well. And meeting. I was on the board of um, something called Omni Women, which were the senior women leaders within Omnicom. And that was one of the most gratifying things that I did post acquisition was meeting the incredible leaders that were also in branding and advertising and communications. Um, But I did everything I wanted to do in in that realm. So now I'm using those same skills for organizations that need them, but don't have the ability to pay for them because they're not, they're, you know, nonprofits or their, their funding is really limited.
0: So l- let me ask you the question uh, do you feel like the creative industry has a role to play in the creation of the overconsumption that we have in our society at the moment
1: Well it's a very complicated question humans are are super complicated we seem to have deeply deeply embedded in our DNA this um, hedonic treadmill where we think somehow that we want and need more than we actually do a lot of that comes from I believe a um, addiction to dopamine and so if you look at the way we behave with things we we Metabolize our purchases really, really quickly and what we might believe will fulfill us in that moment, a new iPhone, a different pair of sneakers, different car, different, more technological television. We might feel that for a short period of time, but we metabolize those purchases really quickly and then we need more. But If you look at all of our emotions, we metabolize them also. We metabolize joy. We metabolize grief the same way that you might feel the day that you lose someone or something. It's not the same way you're going to feel five or 10 years from that point. Um, You still might feel something, but you're not going to feel. Quite that same rawness. Same thing with love. You know, when you pe- when people first fall in love, that sort of goo goo gaga butterflies in the stomach that lasts for a specific period of time, for the most part, and then we metabolize that too. And so, we keep creating things as an in a in a way to fulfill ourselves because we have something that we need to fulfill, um, to fill up. We do that with our emotions. We do that with people. We do that with products. We do that with things. So in order to stop the overproduction and the overconsumption, we'd have to really understand why we do that in the first place. It's not, we could stop the production, but the feeling of needing it, Would still be there. The hole would still be there. Yeah, that hole would still be there. What are we filling up and why? So I believe that we have a responsibility to the planet in that we should stop destroying it with plastic bottles and we should be very, very careful about how we use oil. Um, But in terms of putting limits on how much somebody should either innovate or somebody should collect or consume leads me to a very slippery slope about freedom, and so that's why that question is so complicated mm. for me.
0: I mean, you touched on some interesting things there, but for me, the I don't think we need to. I think we need to ramp up innovation. Actually, not scale it back in order to shift the way we make all the things so that they're not harming the planet. Right. So, but um, you can't
1: really do one without the other. Innovation it what's born from innovation are successes and failures. And so you need to have that um abundance in order to be able to ensure that what is created is indeed successful. Mm, mm.
0: So, so I guess my question, maybe, it, maybe I need to come at it from a slightly different angle. I, I'm not saying that anybody purposefully did anything. I, I think, I think we're in this position. We we're now waking up, going, hold on, this isn't really working for us anymore. We need to change the way we're doing things. But in that process, corporations have created products, and then they've taken the creative skills of the industry to go please help me sell as many of these widgets as possible so that I can make my profits.
1: Um, Well, then they would say, if it's a publicly traded company, that we need to sell these products to fulfill our fiduciary responsibilities to our shareholders, which are people. (laughs) So do we need another mass um, marketed bottled water? No, we do not. Does outlawing that then potentially curtail the innovation to create something that we don't know of yet? Maybe. I think it's really difficult to say that we can or can't make something because we're afraid of the way people are going to behave. I think we need to change the behavior first and then look at the way that we make things.
0: Mm. so so you believe the behavior needs to become before the making of the things change no I don't uh, no oh.
1: no i don't I don't think that I think that we have to be very careful about putting rules into place that can then be hacked by people that want to change the rules or don't want to obey the rules, and that's generally why we're in the situation we're in. It's not that the basic tenets of capitalism is are bad it's that humans are trying to take advantage of those basic tenets of capitalism i mean the basic tenets of capitalism is that we want to create the best product at the best possible price to benefit the people but the people that are making and manufacturing those products are trying to do all sorts of things to be able to get the most money for the basic acceptable product (laughs) and so but telling people that they need them for this specific reason so the the system is rigged right now and Mm. that's what needs to be fixed the basic tenets of capitalism is not what is wrong with this world what's wrong with this world are the people that take advantage of what we have and what we're capable of Mm.
0: so what first question is what do you how do you identify do you identify yourself as a creator what what does that identity look like for yourself
1: um uh, how do i identify identify as somebody that likes to make things i'm happiest when i'm making things
0: i can relate to that um and what do you feel like your role in this life is I'm still working on, still working that, on
1: trying to figure it out. I'd like to think that my life had some meaning. I'm in my late 50s, and so I'm worried that I'm going to run out of time and that by the time I um, feel secure enough and confident enough to actually do something that requires more risk than I'm willing to undertake, that I'll it'll be too late. I worry about that. My whole life has been a exercise in trying to feel better about myself in an effort to do what I really, really want to do. And I worry that I'm running out of time to feel better about myself. Sorry, it's really quite a buzzkill. (laughs) No, I I think
0: there's a piece of that that is part of, my opinion, creativity, do you, or do you do you feel like your some of your creativity was born out of that insecurity or that no fragility? I don't. I don't.
1: No, I don't. I think that it's just kept me from being able to fulfill my creativity, and I think that the notion of needing to suffer or to treat yourself or people badly in the name of creativity is is not something that I I buy into.
0: but do you feel like there's some struggle that's required that's internally maybe that 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 facilitates expression of 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 oneself, one's creativity?
1: Well, the struggles that I generally have when I'm being creative is being as creative as I want to be. You know, when I'm making an illustration, it's not unusual for me to be fighting with the paper, the canvas, or the screen. And I find myself gallantly struggling to get out what I want to get out in a way that is accurate to what I'm thinking about. Um, That's the struggle that I feel, is how do I express what I want to express w- at the skill level that I don't always have
0: <laughs> I mean, I, as a designer I often I feel that where I'm trying to create something and I, like a, as soon as a project's finished I, I like don't want to see it anymore it's, it's done even if it's someone else thinks it's beautiful I, I'm, I've had enough of it and I, I've, I'm, I'm my own worst critic so I, is it similar similar thing for you
1: I go through stages, you know, I'll start out with something and I get very enamored with it because I'm making it and it's exciting to be making it. And then I start to struggle because the skill level might not be what I want it to be. And so then I'm fighting with it. And then if I fight long enough, then I tend to have a breakthrough and then I feel better about it. And then I'll continue doing it and then I'll feel proud of it. And then I'll put it out there and then I'll become really tragically embarrassed by it. And... Then I start all over. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think I think it's that last piece that um, there's something about putting it out there. It's like baring your soul almost in yeah. a way. Like-, like I
1: can't listen to any of my podcasts. any Any interviews I do, I'm in them and I'm present while I'm conducting them. But the whole idea of listening to them afterward tends to be really terrifying for me
0: do you have someone else editing then yes yes yes
1: my producer and he gives me notes and that is hopefully how I get better but it's very hard for me to relive that and think oh
0: (laughs) I think listening to your podcast I've always found it tight and very polished and very like and I feel like you prepare exceptionally well thank you like your questions are always sharp and spot on and there's not a lot of umming and ahhing and fumbling along um you should see the live
1: recording <laughs> <laughs> come to new york my students watch and listen and they see all the bloopers
0: okay. well i'm coming to the one uh, when's it tomorrow the oh, next but, day. yeah you'll see tomorrow when okay. to
1: interview robert wong yeah yeah okay. i make lots of mistakes okay good yeah <laughs>
0: Um, it, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks so much for your time. And, My pleasure. Um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. You're an inspiration to many, many people.
1: Thank you, and you are really wonderful at what you're doing. And congratulations on your podcast. It's really wonderful.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Seed Pod with me, Lee Rail. Thank you so much for your attention. I know that it's not always easy to listen to a conversation that's an hour or more these days with time being so pressed. So, I really appreciate those who are listening to these conversations. And I hope you're getting as much value out of it as I am. And I'm walking away with nuggets of wisdom from each conversation. And I trust that you are as well. You might have noticed that there's a little bit more noise in the backgrounds of the recordings that's because i'm not in a studio anymore i have gone on my own i've got a mobile setup and so i'm doing it all myself i'm recording myself i'm editing myself and so if there's any feedback if it's too loud too soft too noisy let me know if you you have any feedback as to the content of the podcast love to hear from you otherwise keep listening keep sharing and keep being inspired